today's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up, laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Thank you. No, I'm fine, thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be here. So as pa Pastor Susung said, I am part of Indelible Grace Church, and uh, actually New Hope Church is, uh, we, we have a lot of affection for New Hope. Our first retreat, it was, this was about five years ago, I think. It was a joint retreat with New Hope, and uh, the highlight for, for our church was, it was during campfire time, uh, Susung spoke about our church, and he had your church um, pray for our church, and it was this wall of prayer that we just heard, and our people were, were uh, it, was, it was something that was completely unexpected for us, and um, it, was, it, was, it was really powerful f for us to hear these prayers of this church praying for uh, our church. This, uh, you know, our, our church is, uh, it, was, it was smaller back then, and um, we're all younger, we didn't know what we were doing, and it was really encouraging to hear that. So we do have a lot of affection, uh, both myself and the other pastors. Uh, I pastor with uh, one and a half other pastors. One of them is full-time, the other is part-time. Uh, but we all love Su Song. So we're very thankful for this church. I'm very glad to be here. And Su Song asked me to speak about missions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some of the work that my church has been doing uh, over the past, we've been around six years now. And um, I'll share some stories. I'll share some uh, scripture with you about uh, how we think about missions and um, how do we, uh, my church, Indelible Grace Church, and how does your church, New Hope Church, how do we play into what God is doing in the world? So just a little bit about my church. We've been around for six years. It was started by about 15, 20 people who knew nothing about church planting. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. And I was... While the church began, when the church was beginning, I was part of another church plant in Southern California. And this, uh, the church plant that I was part of in Southern California, they, they had a lot of help. They had a lot of mentors looking over them and helping them out. And our church, we had nothing. Um, we didn't have the, the leaders. We didn't have a great uh, deal of charisma. We weren't great. Uh, we weren't really gifted um, like other pastors may be. Um, and it's the fact that we're still alive is a testament to the grace of God. For some reason, God saw fit to use our church, and I don't know what it is. When people come to our church now, I, it's still it's still weird to me. I'm like, why would you come to our church? Um, and you come back week after week. It's so strange to me. But by the grace of God, God is doing something in in our little town of Castro Valley, and we believe that our church is doing a tiny, tiny little bit of what God is doing in the Bay Area and in the whole world. So as I begin my message, um, let's think about that. How, how, how does New Hope, how does my church uh, play into this? Imagine with me a huge stadium full of 100,000 people. And imagine that there are 10,000 people parading around, holding 
flags of every nation in the world. Now, you don't really have to imagine that hard because in about a month, a lot of you will be watching on television the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Every four years, we have this huge spectacle, uh, the, these games, and, and we, we, we watch all the events that are happening, and there is the, the, the glory of victory, and there's the agony of defeat, and it's a really big deal because when else will we see the entire world coming together for one thing? We can imagine that. Now, try to extend your imagination a little bit further. Imagine with me hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people, all looking in one direction for one purpose. Try to imagine that. The Bible gives us a glimpse of the world that is to come. And one day this will not just be part of our imagination. It's going to be a real thing. And let me read to you from Revelation chapter 5. This is uh, the the greatest cosmic event that that will ever occur. It's going to be way more amazing, more beautiful, more stunning than even the best Olympics. And let me read from you from Revelation chapter 5. Think about this. Get a picture of this in your head. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then this is the writer John. He's saying, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, this includes you and me, and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. One day we are going to be a part of this, this huge, massive crowd of everything that's living, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, all gathered for one Huge, cosmic events. So how do we get there? How does your church, how does my church, how, what, what part do we play in getting the world to that point? The quick answer is missions. And I'm glad that you guys are active in missions. Um, it sounds like you guys have some amazing stuff going on. That's the quick and simple answer. Um, let me give, try to add a little bit more nuance and texture to it. How does our church, how does your church be part of bringing the world to that place, to the throne of Jesus? I first want to lay the foundation for what I understand as missions, or what I used to understand as missions. So I grew up in the church, and I, I went to a Christian school, and this was what I heard about missions People are going to hell, and you don't want to be a part of people going to hell. You don't want to, you want to, you want to be able to stop them from going to hell, don't you? Therefore, you should support missions. Perhaps you should even become a missionary. So that was my understanding of missions. It was all about, we don't want people to go to hell. 
But there are a couple ways of, a couple things that are wrong with that way of thinking. First, it uses guilt and fear as a motivator for us to be involved in missions. And second, it makes it seem like people escaping from hell is the only reason that mission exists. But missions, as the Bible presents it, is way more nuanced, it's way more more textured and beautiful than what I previously thought missions to be. I like what Christopher Wright wrote about about worship, and he wrote a book called, um, I forgot the name of the book. I should have looked it up, but uh, I I read this book a few years ago, and it it really helped shape my understanding of missions. So this is what he says about missions. Missions is our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. It's not just about people not going to hell. Missions is ultimately about the glory of God. God has initiated his work. God invites us to do his work. God invites us to participate in the work of God to redeem and and love the people of God. So missions is ultimately about about God's glory. It's about God healing the world. It's about redeeming the world. God is the healer. God is a redeemer. And he is inviting us through missions to take part in doing his work in the world. So as I go on through throughout my message, I have three points. And uh, here they are. The first is what God has done through history what God has done through history. Second, what God is doing in this church through the gospel. And third, what God will do through this church. So our first point, what God has done through, what God has done in history. So what I'm going to do for the next about six minutes is I'm going to hit a bunch of Bible passages. It's, I'm just going to throw, I'm going to vomit uh, Bible verses on you. But I want us to understand, what is the foundation, what's the theological foundation for missions? Why should we care? So I'm going to submit to you that the story of God's work, God's mission, is written throughout Scripture. So let's talk about uh, what God is doing in the Old Testament first. First, God makes himself known to Israel. Israel, are they, this is the people of God. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He provides for his people. He cares for his people. He loves them despite their rebellion against him. He shows his power and goodness to his people. And Israel, in their most sober moments, they respond in worship. And here is a passage from 1 Kings. It talks about what God has done. 1 Kings 8, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. The people of Israel, they've witnessed God's power and they respond in worship. But when God works, he never keeps it to just Israel. He wants the whole world, he wants all the surrounding nations to know what God has done for his people. So not only does God work on behalf of Israel, he wants the nations, the surrounding nations, to see what God has done. He wants them to witness 
how God has redeemed Israel. So from Ezekiel 36, this is what God says. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. He's talking about Israel. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. Let me say that again. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God looks at the nations. He sees that they do not worship him. And he says, look at Israel. I want you to look at Israel and see what I've done. I want you to see through my work that I am a holy God, that I am a good God. And he promises that his work is not limited to just this one nation. It's for the whole world. He wants the whole world to experience the goodness of God. So as God does his work in Israel, as God shows the other nations what he has done, God invites all the nations to worship him. From the Psalms, Psalm 22, all the ends of earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, not just Israel, but Egypt and Syria and Canada and Mexico and the United States. Come and worship God. In Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations. God has in his plan throughout the scriptures, he wants all the nations to worship him, to know him, to sing for joy. And all the nations are beneficiaries of what God has done. In Psalm 47, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over the earth. In Psalm 67, it talks about God's face shining on all the nations. And finally, finally, Not only are the other nations recipients of God's favor and blessing, but they are also included in the people of God. All the nations are to be identified with Israel. The people of Israel are the people of God, and so are the people of the other nations. Let me read to you from Isaiah 56. It says, These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then we come to the New Testament. So God establishes the church about 2,000 years ago. God established his church. And the purpose, the mission of the church is the same purpose and the same mission that God had for Israel in the Old Testament. In 1 Peter It says this, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God called Israel out of the darkness, out of the slavery of Israel, and he calls us, the church, out of the slavery of our sin, out of death, and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles are the surrounding nations, those who are not a part of God's people, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What this passage is telling us is that we are God's people. We are Israel. Israel's history is also 
our history. Israel's story is our story. And just as God used Israel to tell the story of himself, to tell the world about who he is, God is using us, the church, to tell the world about who he is. He wants to show the the world how good and how loving he is through us, the church. So, the, the members of the early church, they heard what God had done, and they heard, yes, God wants to spread his message. God wants us, his people, to tell the nations. So they were faithful to what God had done. This went from the first century Christians to the second century Christians. And the second century Christians told the third century Christians. And this went on and on and on. And somewhere along the line, someone told you about the goodness of God. Because there was a long line of believers that were faithful to what God had called them to do. And thank goodness they were faithful. Thank goodness they understood the purpose of missions. Because it's through their work that we can be recipients of God's blessings. So this is our first point. What has God done through history? And I, I'm not going to uh, scripture vomit on you anymore, but let me move on to our second point. I'm going to uh, hit our main passage, which is what Sarah read earlier from Colossians 1, 3, 3 and 6. And uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at it. I'm going to refer to a few verses. But let's look at our second point, what God is going to do in our church, what God is doing in this church, new hope. So if you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Paul says in this passage, he tells the church, you guys have a reputation. There is faith and hope and love. Other people have noticed it. I've heard about it. Thank God that this is true. There's life here in this church. And how did this happen? In verses 5 and 6, Paul says, the gospel came to them. The gospel, it sank into their consciousness. And through that, they developed, the the Colossian church, they developed a love for each other. They saw who they were. They saw their identity in Christ. They learned to trust God. They had a hope that affected the way that they live. So let's look at what exactly happened in the church. Uh, as, as I do this, I'll be telling a few stories about people in my own church and how God, by the grace of God, not through our own wits or smarts, how God has worked in the lives of the people in my church. So the first thing that happened in the church, looking at the passage in Colossians, the people in, Coloss- in the Colossian church put their faith in Jesus. So this was more than just an intellectual assent to who Jesus was. It was giving their all to Jesus. It was them making Jesus their main identity. And I love the picture that one commentator gives us about what it means to have faith in Jesus. This is a commentator by the name of F.F. Bruce, and he says this, The phrase, faith in Jesus Christ, indicates not so much that Christ Jesus is the object of their faith, so much as it is that he is the living environment within, their, within which their faith is exercised. It means that these people did not just place their faith in Jesus. It meant that they themselves were living within Jesus Christ. They were in Christ. Christ was everything to them. 
And it meant that everything that they did, everything that they did in the church, outside the church, in their families, in their marketplace, at their jobs, in their home, all this was done in the context of who they were in Christ. How am I going to treat my wife? How am I going to treat my coworkers? How am I going to express my anger or my love towards the people around me? It has to be in the context of who I am in Christ. Paul refers to the Colossians in the beginning letter, uh, in the first chapter, as the saints in Christ. It's not just that they intellectually assented. It's not just that they believed, but that their lives showcased their faith. Who are you? Let me show you by the way I live my life. I am in Christ. Their actions reflected the reality that Jesus was living in their church was alive and that Jesus was an integral part of who they are. So this is the first thing that the gospel has done in the Colossian church and the first thing that it has done in my church and your church. It brings people to a trust in Jesus. People, they entrust their lives to Jesus. It, re- it redefines who they are. So now let me tell you a story about a guy in my church. This guy, I'm changing some of the names uh, that I'm going to tell you, or that I'm going to share with you um, just for the sake of privacy. This is a story about a guy named Tom. And Tom began attending our church about four years ago as a, as a visitor. Someone invited him to our church. And uh, f- over the course of the next four years, he would come regularly to our church and over the years, he had a lot of questions about the Christian faith. And various people, they, they would talk to him. They would meet up with him. Some people went through Christian books with him. And he was always very respectful of the Christian faith. He would still come. And actually, he would serve. In, in, he would help us set up the room. He would help us tear down the room. But there were just some, there were a number of objections that he couldn't overcome Questions about the Bible, questions about the nature of God, questions about the exclusivity of the Christian faith. And over time, he, he, he had those objections answered. I met with him a bunch of times. Uh, other people met with him a bunch of times. And over the years, objections were, were toppled. And he got to a point where he knew the gospel so well. He knew the Bible better than a lot of the regular tenders of our church. But he said to me, I just can't believe, and I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. The Christian faith, the things that you guys say about the Bible, it makes sense to me, but I can't just believe it because I, I, it's not enough for me to just believe. I can't just, it's not just a history book that I agree with. It's not like the fourth grade history book that I, I read in elementary school. Because there's something consequential about putting your faith in Jesus. And he didn't know what it was. He just said, I can't believe. A couple months ago, I sat down with him over dinner and he said, I finally believe. And I don't know what it is. But I know that my life belongs to Jesus now. It wasn't an intellectual ascent. It took a really long time for him to get to that point. But he was able to put his faith in Jesus because at some point, God cracked open his heart and he said, Tom, you are my child now. You are mine. And in the same way, he can say to God, 
yes, you are mine, I am yours. All of my life belongs to you. And he, he's a cop um, for the city of Berkeley. As a cop in the city of Berkeley, my work belongs to you. So just as a gospel had done his, its work in the Colossian church, it did its work in the, in the life of my church. And what stories are here at New Hope? What has God done at this church? The gospel is doing its work here at New Hope Church. What else has happened in the Colossian church? Look at verse 4. There's a love for all the saints. Paul points out that there are relationships that are formed as a, as a result of the gospel doing its work. There was a new community that was formed, not just around shared interests, not just around ethnicity, not just around because we live here in San Jose, but because of the gospel. The gospel was a common denominator among all the people. A new community was formed. The people were not just friendly, but they embodied a type of love that was foreign to the rest of the world in which they lived. Paul starts off the letter of Colossians referring to the people in the Colossian church as brothers. And it's easy for us to just skim over that. Well, of course you're going to call them brothers. In the first century Mediterranean world, there was a completely different understanding of family. One of my professors in seminary, he, he, his life work was studying the first century uh, history and how, how the church fit into it and all the social dynamics. And he says that there were three principles that informed the way that members in the early church treated each other. The first was this. In the first century Mediterranean world, the group took priority over the individual. And that meant that the health of the group, the health of the church, was more important than the health of the members, of the individual members. Who you are as a body is more important than who you are as a small member of the church. The second, in that culture, a person's most important group was his blood family. When Paul calls his, the, the people in the Colossian church brothers and sisters, he's saying, my relationship to you, this is the most important relationship, more so than the relationship with my mother, than my father, than my cousins. My relationship with you in the church is more important than anything else. And in that culture, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage, but the bond between siblings. For those of us that are married, you may know that over time, it might take years or decades, but you become one person, hopefully. You know who the person that, that you're sleeping beside to in bed for over the course of decades. You become the same person. But what's in the first century, what Paul is saying is you as believers your marriage is not the most important thing. Your life in the church, your relationship with others in the church, that is more important. And this is shocking to us. This is shocking because how can that be? But the gospel has done that work in the church. In the life of the Colossian church, it was informed by these principles and they treated other believers with this deep, deep love. At the very least, they treated each other with the same love that they would have for their own blood family members. It means that they sacrificed for each other. It meant that they, they forgave each other when they were hurt. It means that they watched out for each other's families 
what belongs to me belongs to you. It means that they held themselves responsible for the spiritual welfare of others. I'm responsible for your spiritual health and your well-being. Do you love your church family? Do you love others more than you love yourself? And if so, Paul says it's because the gospel has done his, its work in the church. And if we live in Christ, and if there's a committed love between the members of the church, what is it that made that happen? The gospel. Let me share with you another story from my church. And this is about a couple named Paul and Kelly. Paul and Kelly, they were married for a few years, and they had a huge heart for evangelism and discipleship. One day, Paul, he befriended a, a guy, and um, Paul is, he's Korean, and he befriended uh, an African-American guy, and he, he, was, he needed a place to stay. So for several months, this guy, he lived at Paul and Kelly's home. And over those months, uh, Paul and Kelly would take him to church, and this guy would go, but he also did his own thing. Um, over his, the course of his time there, he stole a number of things from the home, and he eventually, Paul said, you know, you can't live here anymore. You've, you've done too much. But it was through this guy that they met another girl. This was the girlfriend of the guy that was living with him. Her name is Winnie. And Winnie, she had her own set of problems, but Paul and Kelly took her in, and they said, we want to love you. They took her to church, and she became a believer. But at the same time, she still struggled with certain sins that stemmed from her childhood. She got into numerous unhealthy relationships. Even as she claimed, her, claimed to call Christ Lord, she would get into all these unhealthy relationships. She would do things behind people's backs, and it was just really bad. And a few months ago, Paul and Kelly and Winnie, they sat down with uh, me and the other pastor at my church, and they shared with me very candidly, here's what's going on. Winnie said, yes, I struggle with these sins. Paul and Kelly said, we're trying to help her, and we're going to love her despite all the ways in which she disappoints us. We're still going to love her. I'm not sure how this story is going to end, but I share this story with you. Because Winnie's is still a work in progress. Paul and Kelly, they still treat her, even though they are not seeing the return on investment, if you will, that they wanted to see. They're not really getting much out of this relationship. But they are loving their friends. Even as she disappoints her friends, even as she hurts her friends, they are committed to her well-being we always thank God, Paul says in Colossians, and when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, this is what the gospel has done in the Colossian church and in my church and in your church. Is there a love in this church? Do you live in Christ? Do you care for each other? So on to our final points, what God will do through the church, what God will do through this church we see that there is a forward movement to the gospel. Look at verse 6. Paul mentions that all over the world, throughout the entire world, the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing. It goes out into the nations, and it's also doing something among the believers. So let's first talk about what it's going to do here in this local community. Paul tells the gospel, 
Paul tells the church that the gospel will cause fruit to grow in their lives. We're told in another one of Paul's letters in Galatians, the fruit of the, 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 fruit of the Spirit. These are the fruits that show up in a believer's life. There is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the gospel takes root in our lives, these things will spring up. There are very practical implications for how the gospel does its work in our life. It should make us more loving people. It should make us more patient people. It should make us more forgiving people. It should give us a calm and a peace even in the most trying of circumstances. It should give us joy in times of sorrow. It should make us treat other people with kindness. Now you might say, just like I might say, that sounds really good. But look at my life. I don't have that peace that Paul is talking about. I have trouble loving the people around me. I still struggle with temptation. I still sin. What's going on? Paul is talking about fruit. And where does fruit come from? Fruit comes from a tree. And how does a tree start? It starts with a little tiny seed. It doesn't spring up overnight. And its branches don't explode with fruit right away. It takes time for the tree to grow. It takes water. It takes exposure to the sun over months and years and decades. And in the same way, we may not see immediate change in our own lives or in the lives of other people. But God promises to finish his work. He says elsewhere, he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God will complete his work in us. So for those of us who are discouraged, Paul says, don't lose heart. As long as you're alive, it means that God is still doing his work in you. And it also means that God is still doing his work amongst other people. Let me share one more story with you from my church. And this is about a woman named Rachel. Rachel is a single mother. And she started coming to our church about three years ago. And she's one of these really loud, gregarious personalities, if you know this type. Uh, she actually grew up on the mission field. Her parents were missionaries. And um, she did not follow in, her, in their footsteps. Uh, but someone invited her to church. And she started coming to our church. And she came for a little while. And then she stopped coming for a little while. And then she started coming again. And um, at some point, she even got involved in my own small group. And she would share with us her struggles. She, um, as a single mother... She, had, she would do the best she could as a single mother to care for her child. But single mothers, they have limited resources, and she had to work a job as well. So she wasn't able to take care of her daughter as well as she could have. She also had a severe gambling problem. And if you know anything about gambling, it just snowballs. And it changes not just your finances. It changes every aspect of your life. About six months ago, she moved to another country and... Uh, actually, before that, she got into a really, really unhealthy relationship with someone. Um, she got pregnant and then had an abortion. And um, our, 
despite the pleas of her friends, she continued on with the relationship and eventually she broke it off. Uh, she moved somewhere else and she just recently came back to California and she started coming to our church again. And I don't know how this story is going to end. I really don't know because we have been with her for years and it's been maddening to watch her just self-destruct over and over and over. Her life isn't in a better spot. I don't know if it ever will be, but this is what I do know, that if the gospel has taken root in her heart, God is going to do something in it. There might be a small change that's, that's planted, and maybe in six months, maybe in three years, maybe in 15 years, God will open her eyes. Maybe she'll have a moment of clarity. Maybe at that point she can say, yes, I can admit that my life is a mess and I submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus. I don't know. And there may be people that we, we may have given up on. There may be people that we've been praying for and we say, God, I've been praying for this person for so long and why don't you do something? Colossians 1 tells us that the gospel will bear fruit. The gospel will bear fruit. And through the gospel, God has done a work in the world. God has done a work in my church. God will continue to do a work in my church. And God will continue to do a work here at New Hope. I said earlier that missions is us taking part in what God is doing in the world. How can we become a part of that? Perhaps some of us may become missionaries. Perhaps some of us will go on short-term mission trips. Perhaps some of us will make giving to missions a priority in our budgets. And these are all fantastic things. These are all things that we should do. But we can also be a part of God's mission to the world by being faithful where we are right here. How can we be a part of that? We can be a part of it by living our lives in Christ as an employee, as a family member, as a friend, as a neighbor. We can invite our friends and neighbors to live in the same life that we live in. We can love the saints, just as my friends Paul and Kelly, they're, they're loving this person who they're not getting, getting anything back from. We can sacrifice for our friends we can minister to our friends year after year, decade after decade, with a certain hope that the gospel will work. The gospel will do its work in the lives of the people around us. Colossians 1.6, again, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The work of the gospel is increasing let me close with one final story, and this is not a story from my church. It's actually a story from a movie. It came out in the mid-90s called Mr. Holland's Opus. The story is about a man. His name is Glenn Holland, and he's a musician who dreams about writing a symphony. And the movie follows him over the course of 30 years. And he thinks as he, he begins his, his, his job as a teacher, he tells his wife, I'm going to do this for a few years. Um, in the meantime, I'll be working on my own music, on my own symphony. And hopefully after four years, I'm going to be able to do what I really want to do. 
I really want to be a musician. I really want to be making music for the world to hear. For a number of reasons, he's unable to quit, and he ends up teaching at the school until he retires. And throughout the story, we see these scenes of him bickering with with his wife. We see him fighting with a school board, with the principals who don't like what he's doing. We see him struggling with the students. The students, they drive him crazy. Don't you guys get this? Don't you guys care? I'm trying so hard. I'm pouring my life into you, and it seems like nothing is happening. At the end of his career, he wonders, what has become of my life? All the things that I set out to do, I don't see it. On the final day of, of, of his job, his final day of school, after 30 years of teaching, Mr. Holland, he walks through the school halls one last time. And as he's walking to his car, he hears faintly in the auditorium, music. And he goes, what is going on? I thought I was the last one in the school. So he walks to the auditorium. He opens the door and he's greeted by thousands of his former students. A a, a huge roar of people clapping for him, cheering for him. And he stands there completely dumbfounded and he slowly makes his way to the front of the auditorium. As he walks down the aisle, he, he sees there is the pothead student that he completely gave up on that caused him so much grief. He sees the students that he thought they made nothing of their lives. But here they are. He sees the people that, that struggled with their instruments, and they're all there. He sits down, and one of his old students comes walking down. She has become the governor of the states. And she asks everyone to sit down, and and she takes the stage. And this is what she says to Mr. Holland. She says, Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life and on a lot of lives I know. But I have a feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his. And this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town, so it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. But he would be wrong, because I think that he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There's not a life in this room that you have not touched, and each of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. She ends her talk by pulling out a baton, a conductor's wand, and she asks Mr. Holland to walk up on the stage to take the wand. He takes it, and as he does, a curtain opens, and there are even more of his former students holding their instruments and her form, his former student asked him, will you p- conduct the first performance of your symphony? She somehow fi- found the sheet music to this piece of music that he's been working on his whole life. And he conducts his symphony. He hears the work, the music of his life for the first time. 30 years he thought his life was gone. He wanted to create this beautiful piece of music. For the first time, he can hear it.
Mr. Holland had no idea how much his work mattered while he was teaching, but in the end, he was able to hear the song that meant so much to him. And this is what I want to say to New Hope Church, to anyone who cares about missions, to anyone who wants to live a life faithful to what God has called you to, to anyone who has given their lives to the Lord year after year, decade after decade, your work at this church, on the mission field, in the workplace, in your home, it matters. It matters. And one day when everything is said and done, you too will hear a song. But it's going to be a song far more beautiful than Mr. Holland's opus. It's going to be the song of saints from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Countless voices singing to Jesus, the Lamb, the picture that I gave for you from Revelation earlier. Singing, holy, 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 worthy, 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 blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Do you want to hear that song? Because you will. And the work that you do will be a part of that. This is the ultimate goal of missions. And God has given us the privilege to take part in it. Will you pray with me? God, we can live such small lives sometimes, but you invite us to live a life that is huge. It spans the globe. It spans the universe. It's far beyond what we can even imagine, God. And you've called us to be a part of that work. So will you, through your Holy Spirit, empower us to do that? Give us a love for the saints. Give us a love for the world. Give us the reminder day after day that we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And it's through that that we can do the work. We pray in his name, Christ Jesus. Amen.